everyone. I'm so excited to get a chance to sort of preview this interview we'll be doing today with Dr. Alok Patel. So, you know, he's an amazing pediatric physician, journalist, and a COVID expert. Now, hold on. You're probably thinking what I thought, which is COVID expert. Okay, boring. But I want to tell you that he has an amazing passion for public health that's contagious. But more importantly, He's a real guy and he understands that not only do we want to learn about COVID and some of our burning questions, but what does this really mean to our real lives? How do we live in a world of contagion and really thrive? And what can we really do in our daily lives that we can truly feel are things that we can digest and do, but it doesn't disrupt our way of living? And I think he really gets the idea that everything we do in preparation for being healthy and well needs to also make sense in our day-to-day -day lives. So I'm excited today that Dr. Patel will share not only his passion, but also dive deep into some of your burning COVID questions and really take the health facts versus the fake news. And I also kind of dug deeper to find out a little bit about his journey to becoming a doctor and now a media expert. And you'll be able to share and see in this interview today what makes him so appealing in his public appearances. So let's get started because you're in for a real treat. I just think it's such a timely topic to be talking about everything that's going on with health, well-being, your immune system, COVID, but, but Alok is a pediatric hospitalist and medical journalist and on-camera expert, producer. He's a devotee of creative, engaging science communication tactics. Are you worn out yet? It's amazing. He's currently working as a special correspondent for ABC7 News in the Bay Area. He's also a medical analyst for WGN Chicago and is a regular contributor to a ton of other digital and television news outlets. Additionally, he's the co-host of PBS Nova's Parental Logic, a parenting meets pediatrics digital comedy education program. So yes, he's smart. Yes, he's, he's a physician, but he's also got a great sense of humor. So I'm excited to have him with us today. Uh, last but not least, he's involved in several advocacy efforts, most notably related to sex trafficking. And as you guys know, we're based here in San Diego, so we talk about that subject a lot, being on the border, as well as mental health education and addressing science misinformation, which I'm super excited as we look at the whole topic of COVID and the information that's there. So welcome, Dr. Patel. We're excited to have you today. Thanks for having me, Celeste. I'm not sure if I can live up to that intro. I'm worn out just thinking of all the things you do. So it's I appreciate super... it. And I appreciate you and this platform. No, it's exciting. So, you know, I wanted to ask a little bit because your background is so diverse and you do cover, you know, such a wide range of activity and participation. Tell me a little bit about your background and sort of how you got into public health first and foremost. It's actually more of a story of how I got interested in storytelling, science communication, and how that led me to media, which I would argue influences public health. But basically, so I'm a pediatric hospitalist, which means I finished medical school, I had a ton of debt, and then I went and did a pediatric residency where you're eat, sleeping, thinking, and living in a hospital. And in that time, what I noticed with my patients and my patients' families, and it doesn't matter if they were talking to me about vaccinations or healthy eating or STDs, pneumonia, whatever it was, there was a certain way that they related to information. And there was a certain kind of, there were certain sources of information that they would see, whether it be on like a social media post or a news headline or anything that, that would kind of grab, they, they would gravitate towards. And that was fascinating to me because here we are as healthcare professionals, we're trained to look at data and scientific research studies but the lay public isn't necessarily going to academic journals. And like there was something getting lost in that translation. And so, you know, this was back in 2012 and I began to be really, I began to be really fascinated about the physician, the healthcare professional's role in kind of getting involved in, in communication to the masses. 
you know, what are the things that we can do? Can we be funnier? Can we be engaging? Can we storytell? Can we just kind of break it down to being humans talking to humans? And so from there, I got fascinated. I started learning a little bit of journalism. I did an internship at ABC News, which completely changed my life. And the rest is public health journalism history. Well, I think what you said that really strikes a chord with me, and we, we do it a lot, talking so much about being ambassadors for skin health and wellness. You know, you said breaking it down in a human dialogue. And I think that is, to me is so important because I think, you know, a lot of times the tech talk can be a little overwhelming. And I think being able to break it down, not only into things people can understand, but things they can act upon, right? Because I think everyone wants to know, okay, that's great that I understand that, but now what can I do with that knowledge in my day-to-day -day life? And I think that's where, as you said, the storytelling and the ability to also make things actionable for people. So I was curious, you know, how you utilize media, you know, how you utilize not only social media, but the other aspects of broadcast and so forth to really help with getting that frontline message out. Great question. And I really appreciate the fact that you use the word actionable because I think that's what it honestly comes down to when it comes to health information. And so for me personally, when I see people trying to sell products, which I don't agree with, or I see a celebrity talking about the latest fad diet or whatever fitness trend, there is something that viewers see and they're like, oh, I should buy that product or I should try that workout. There's an actionable item for them. And so for me, I wanna use that exact same tactic and I want to make sure that we're not only educating people and we're teaching people about public health, we're teaching people how to translate these head medical headlines, but also we're leaving everyone with a sense of what to do about it. They're like, okay, this new COVID-19 study came out. Awesome. Does it matter? Does it not? Do I need to change my practices? Do I need to think differently about how I take care of my, <clears throat> excuse me, do I need to think differently about how I take care of my family? Like, how does this actually affect me? And I think when you take it down, to that level and you make sure you know there's something in it for everyone it just becomes more, it becomes more engaging you know people then say i want to read this post because i know at the end of it i'm going to be a little bit more empowered and so that's not only something that i've learned to do it's something that you know we all collectively encourage all of our colleagues to do say like great you got a message make sure your audience who may not be health literate they may be young they may be old knows what to do with it yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, we do something here called skincare coaching, to your point, which is, you know, sort of helping to guide people with where can they get good information? You know, how do they practice self-awareness, self-ambassadorship for their health, et cetera? You know, and one of the things we see quite often is that, you know, you were just saying, you, you know, you try to guide them, give them the great resources. But I think also people really want to feel that things are personalized to them and to their questions. And I think that is the power of even mediums like what we have today where, you know, people can reach out to you and ask questions and be able to get answers to burning questions they have. And we're going to keep that thought of burning questions because we're going to hit you with a round of those a little bit later. Burn it up. <laughs> you're ready. You're up for it. I can tell it. It'll be awesome. Um, you know, when we talk about COVID, and I know you've been super active on uh, this front, but, you know, when we talk about COVID, has it changed you? Has it changed your daily routines? As you know, when you think about how it impacts all of us, I think to your point, all of a sudden people that used to not be interested in talking about health are now really thinking about themselves and their families and the people they love and what they can do to protect one another. So, you know, as an expert, how do you incorporate what you're learning into your daily life? Has it changed habits or things you think about or what you do personally? I think people will always want to know, hey, it's great what you're telling me to do, but how does an expert sort of take this into the day-to-day? -day? Well, I would be lying if I said it hasn't changed every healthcare professional, including all of us doctors. You know, we, we are even more vigilant about hand washing and wearing masks and being physically distanced, just like everyone else. You know, every single flu season, we tell everyone to wash our hands. That doesn't mean that doctors are the best at washing their hands, <laughs> straight up. But you know, all of our, all of my colleagues are very aware of it right now. And you know, one of the things that it's kind of changed is my, my appreciation for actually valid, responsible content. And it, we knew this stuff existed. I knew misinformation and conflicting ideas and special interests always existed, but I've never seen it to this level. 
I've never seen it highlighted in this way. And it's made me really respect the people out there who have actually good, positive stories that need to be shared. It's made me respect all the journalists, the families, the you know people who have gone through COVID-19 wanting to tell their story, the frontline workers, the people still delivering food, the UPS drivers. It's made me really respect the human experience right now and made me like kind of learn what we shouldn't be taking for granted. And then if I can answer this on a very personal note, which I hope resonates with at least somebody, I've, I've taken my mental health seriously. You know, it's not something I've ever neglected because I think it tends to get pushed around in healthcare. You know, there's a huge rate of burnout here, but during this pandemic, I've had a newfound appreciation for mindfulness, meditation, and really paying attention to my own devices to curb my anxiety. I started to hit this breaking point in March and April with everything that was happening. And a lot of us spend so much time focusing on what we can do and trying to juggle our 150 tasks that we forget to pay attention to ourselves. And that really hit me like a freight train this spring. I kind of took it back, focused on the mindfulness. I read uh, Dan Harris's book, 10% Happier, which really related to me. And I feel like that's, if there's been any silver lining for me personally on a selfish level, it's been that. It's been a better grasp on my own kind of mental health. You know, there is such an opportunity when you think about happy, you know, when you think about positive and, you know, looking at the amazing stories that are out there. And, you know, one thing I recently this weekend watched, uh, Social Dilemma. It's a, it's about, I don't know if you've seen it. Have you seen that? In the first, like, 30 minutes and I'm like, this is going to be good. <laughs> and I just really couldn't, you know, coming from the technology background where I spent most of my career you know, really looking at how, you know, we are driving people to that level of misinformation and, you know, the fact that everybody now can make a comment or a story that's not vetted and more importantly, actually manipulate your responses to it. And I think, you know, not meaning to take us down that rabbit hole, but just saying that I think when you talk about mental health, our ability to be aware, you know, self-aware, you know, anxiety is increased if you, depending on which study you look at or which statistic, it's anywhere from 50 to 75%, particularly in young people over this last 12 month period. So I think, you know, it's something that's very real. And I think all of us thinking about what are those moments where we can decompress, connect with the people we love, have a human one-on-one connection, which can help alleviate it, but also the resources to talk to someone when you're feeling like you need that connection to help you regain, you know, your ground. And I think that's such an important part of where we are right now is really making sure we don't lose that human experience because we're doing everything virtually, you know, and it's easy to feel isolated and sort of disconnected because we don't have that physical connection. I mean, right now, yeah, I'm looking at you and it's the next best thing, but it doesn't really replace the human flesh, you know, the feeling that you get when you're connected with people that you care about. So I think that's just something, you know, to hitchhike on is really making sure we're giving people good actionable things, whether it's breathing, whether it's, you know, uh, you know, thinking about meditation or exercise or whatever people find as that outlet, you know, to sort of regain. And I hope people don't take any of it for granted when we finally get it back. I know. If anything, right, maybe we're more grateful. I know I am for everything that's in my life. So, you know, when you when you're thinking about you know, working with your patients during COVID or, you know, what you're talking about in the media front lines, you know, are you seeing changes in your patients? We talked about, you know, you and what you've done personally, but are you seeing changes in your patients' mental health since COVID? You know, what are you recommending to the people that you work with about staying positive and resilient in this time? I'll focus on the mental health changes I'm seeing my patients because I think a lot of people out there could guess the kind of illness changes we're seeing and it kind of the increased anxiety and stress people who have chronic illnesses who are immunocompromised meaning they have a weakened immune system what they have right now but you know a startling change I've seen in my adolescent patients is kind of that the uncertainty the anxiety the stress the feelings of what it's like to not be able to experience your high school prom to be away from your friends at such a pivotal time, you know, when you're in junior high and high school, like that's, that's what the joy is at that age. You're supposed to be able to go out and kick it with your friends on the weekend and none of them are able to do this right now. And then there's, you have that, that's one social component. 
you also have the entire component I've seen as well of these kids who may be in unsafe or abusive households, verbally, physically. A lot of kids out there are food insecure. They don't have enough to eat. They're stuck at home right now. They're not, you know, there's 30 million children who depend on the food assistance program in, in our school districts. That's a whole other element of anxiety. I've talked to a lot of parents who are saying like, I have no idea how we're gonna get through summer vacation. You know, this was back in, in April. You know, I have no idea how I'm going to take care of my kids while I'm trying to work. I've had other families say, you know, one of us is going to lose, lose a job. We don't know what to do then. And then there's even families who are well-to-do. There's no financial worry, but there's huge worries about how they're going to be able to parent their kids. You know, some people have children with a certain medical diagnosis, and they're not sure how they're going to function in distance learning. So it's really been every, everyone, this is ironically unifying, but everyone has been hit with a different stressor depending on their specific situation. And that has kind of added this like element of mutual commiseration, if you will. Well, and I think what you're saying is so relevant to me. I mean, I'm very close to, you know, a situation of friends of mine where, as you said, their kids have special needs. And when they're in the school system, there's all kinds of support tools for them that are there to provide, you know, therapy, counseling, all of those things that sort of disappear among, you know, in the COVID setting and trying to navigate how they can become all the therapists rolled into parent, you know, um, you know, in their day to day, but also being the mom of a, of a college student, you know, um, you know, I think about for her, you know, the whole experience is that connection. She's in biology, obviously. So she, they do all these labs and hands on that kind of have changed in this light and the, the social connection. So I think, you know, really encouraging all of our young people to know this is a moment in time. Yes, it's super painful, but we're going to get through it, right? And also how to how to be safe but still connected, I think is one of our biggest challenges. So, you know, as we talk about what we can do, um, what would be your advice to the parent of someone who's a younger person? You know, what should we be doing to help encourage those same people you were just talking about in the day-to-day? -day? Or are there things we can do to help them during this time? I think there's a lot that we can do to kind of support and make, you know, the younger kids, the adolescents kind of feel supported, feel safe. It depends on the kid's age. But I, there's one thing I always encourage people to do is to not BS your kids. You know, obviously, if your child is three or four years old, you can't tell them about the reproductive factor of this virus. And you don't worry about that, but it's okay to actually tell them like, hey, you know, people are getting sick right now. It's gonna pass. It's okay to be scared. I'm scared as well, but here's what we're gonna do to get through it. It's okay to encourage them to wear a mask and explain why they're doing this and explain, you know, these are the things that are gonna keep us safe. Because, you know, kids as young as two, three years old are gonna model their behavior and their anxiety after their parents. So you wanna set a good yet realistic example. Now, older kids, I think it's absolutely appropriate, depending on your situation, to talk to your kids about what's happening. Because if parents aren't addressing this, these kids are actually hearing it from their friends, from social media, from watching TV. And I've seen this time and time again, when you know I'll have a patient in the hospital, it's 2 a.m., I see an 11-year-old who isn't asleep, and they're sitting on their phone on YouTube. And they're watching videos about conspiracy theories or they're watching different news outlets and they will ask me, they're like, oh my gosh, I just read that this, um, this is actually a true story. I had a 12 year old and he was like, you know, I just read that this virus was caused by cell phone towers oh because God. I saw this video on YouTube. And in my mind, I was like, this is exactly what the issue is right now with, this, with misinformation. And it's a lot for parents to try to stay on top of that. And so I think, you know, for any parent out there, the two things is being honest with your children in an age appropriate fashion, recognizing those emotions, validating those emotions. You know, I always use the example of Liam Neeson in Love Actually, yeah, when, his, exactly. when his young son, his young son talks about how he has the love of his life in school. And instead of dismissing it, Liam Neeson almost acknowledges that emotion. He's like, okay, you're in love. Let's talk about it. Which I, which I literally use as a model during COVID. I'm like, hey, if your kid says, I freaked out, it's okay. A lot of people are freaked out, but let's work through that. And then last but not least, this is not just parents. This is encouraging literally every human being on the planet that it's okay to ask for help. It is encouraged to ask for help. No one is supposed to be able to know all the answers and know how to get through this on their own. All of us at some point have to do it. I've done it multiple times in the past uh, seven months. 
Yeah, I'm going to share with you that I will support that a thousand percent. I say that all the time and I think we have to be open, but it also starts, Dr. Patel, with what you said, which is I think as parents or as friends, we have to acknowledge that all of us are in that boat and that, you know, I think sometimes, I think sometimes we want to be so strong for our children, we don't acknowledge the human aspect of, of what's natural, you know, fear is natural, you know, remorse is natural. So at the end of the day, you know, making sure we're sharing that with our kids is is just so, or and our friends, it's just so important. So, you know, I want to turn the dialogue a little bit to, you know, boosting our health. So we talked a little bit about mental health, but when we talk about, you know, our immune systems and sort of what we can be doing on a daily basis, regardless, like you said, I mean, there's flu season, right? Whether it's COVID or it's something else. And not only that, you know, the stress and all the things that can impact your immune function outside of just COVID, what are you recommending for how people can boost their immune systems? Um, and in that, we can also talk a bit about vaccines and sort of your thought process, because we're getting into that season of, of all of the above. So what are your tips for how we can boost being healthy during this, this next season? Well, my quote unquote tips are probably going to annoy some of the listeners <laughs> because there is no magic pill. There is no magic potion that is scientifically proven to quote unquote boost your immune system. And I have to say this because my God, there are so many ads <laughs> on Instagram and on TV about immune boosting pill or try this shake, it will boost your immune system. The, the best things you can do, I won't even use the word boost, to optimize your immune system, to give your body the best fighting chance against viruses are everything that you know to do that a lot of us don't pay attention to. So things like making sure you're sleeping eight to 10 hours a day. A lack of sleep can actually make you more predisposed to getting sick. Managing our stress, people say this all the time, and the reason why is because it's so important that you know, stress, is, stress can put your body in an inflammatory state. So managing your stress, no matter what you're doing, if you're unplugging your phone, if you're meditating a little bit, if you're going outside and practicing martial arts like I do, whatever you need to do, manage your stress, staying hydrated, eating a balanced, healthy diet, and exercising. It's funny, these are such boring tips. And the reason I don't think these tips, you know, go flying off the charts is because you can't make money off them. And so I don't often see companies saying, hey, make sure you sleep eight to 10 hours a night. They'll instead say, hey, sleep eight to 10 hours a night and make sure you buy our pill. Yeah. Or make sure you, you know, use this app. But honestly, as long as you follow those pillars, then within that, you do whatever you need to do to make sure you're achieving it. If, you know, if, in order for you to be able to get a healthy, nutritious meal, if you need to do something different with your schedule, if you need to you know, look online for recipes or use one of those delivery services, whatever it is, as long as you're doing that. If we're missing you know, sleep, exercise, managing stress, these basic tenets of our immunity, then taking anything else doesn't really matter. And obviously, I didn't mention hand washing. That's a given. We should be doing that more than ever. Well, I love that you talked about, you know, the whole idea of exercise, because right now what happens is, you know, people are homeschooling, they're, you know, virtually learning with their children, they're working from home. And the number one thing I see in, in our circles and talking to consumers is, well, you know, I just don't have time, you know, I'm just so busy and I'm so stressed and that 10 minute walk or just getting out and, you know, being, I call it, I always use the word move because somehow exercise to people it makes them think they need an hour. And I'm always like, you just need to be moving. Like, are you moving every day? What are you doing? But the reason I bring up, it's like if one more person talks about beauty supplements, I'm like, really give me a break. There is no supplement that's going to restore all your lines and wrinkles, you know, less than 1% gets to the skin, so forget it. But it is something that people want that magic pill. And I think um, there isn't a magic pill, right? There's daily habits and lifestyle choices, right, that we make to get there. So I love, I think your tips are sexy. I think they're great because- they're I appreciate real. that. They're I don't, I, It's true. <laughs> if you, if you got these people out there who are pushing this like all natural lifestyle and I'm like, great. So in an all natural lifestyle, several hundred years ago, people were not doing anything that you're buying right now. Right. So no one was taking these collagen pills um, hundreds of years ago in this quote unquote all natural lifestyle. So go back to nature and, you know, follow these basic tenets that our bodies have you know evolved to do over the last you know several thousand years? Just well, it's take just hilarious. To your point, you know we formulate products here, and and I don't put collagen in a product, and they're like, "What do you mean?" I'm like, "Your body will make collagen better than anything I could ever put in a bottle." And you know, let's just talk about being healthy, right, and getting there. So 
I totally agree and subscribe a thousand percent. Hyaluronic acid's water and you're paying $30 to put it in a bottle. You know, it's just crazy stuff when you think. Yeah, about and it. all those tips will make your skin bright and shiny as well. I know, I love it. That's what I'm saying. I'm subscribing. It's awesome. So if you're talking to someone that you love, someone in your family about the COVID-19 vaccine, what is the message that you would give them? Because we have so many people who are questioning, is it safe? The process was so quick. Have we re is it something that we really should participate in at this moment? Is there any high risk to us? So you're talking to someone you love, someone in your family, what would be your message to them about the vaccine? And would you encourage them to have it? So much. Off the top, regardless of whom I'm talking to or what their belief system is, the first thing I would say is that the vaccine is safe. We have clear proof that the vaccine works and major healthcare organizations and leading scientists across the world stand by the science that went into getting us the emergency use authorization for the vaccines. So that alone should provide a lot of reassurance for, for people. I know that's not enough. And so I think when it comes down to communicating something like the vaccine, I wanna know what people specifically are concerned about rather than me spouting out a bunch of data and evidence. If someone isn't convinced right now, based on the fact that we've now tested between the Pfizer and the Moderna trial over 70,000 people, and there's been a global collaboration of scientists, and now across social media, you have healthcare workers ranging from custodial staff to ICU doctors to nurses and everyone in between getting the shot and standing by the science. If that doesn't convince people, then they have a specific concern that I wanna address with them. And you know, one of the most popular concerns, if you will, I'm hearing from people is that the process was rushed. And people are saying like, oh my gosh, you know, there's no way this is safe. It's been rushed, they've cut corners. And first of all, I think the important thing for people to understand is how and why the process was able to move so quickly. And it's because it was built on pre-existing science. So the concept of an mRNA, a messenger RNA vaccine, that was not developed in January, 2020. That is something scientists built upon. We've also never seen a collaboration like we have with respect to these companies and scientists across the world having a singular goal of getting this vaccine out to market. This has never happened before. You know, there's the, the fastest time we've seen a vaccine come to market is about four years of research. But now this is 2020. This is a different sense of urgency and technology. So it's reasonable to see it get done this quickly. It's still remarkable. And through that process, what I tell people, if you actually go down and look at the data and the way these clinical trials were conducted, no safety check was left. No steps were skipped in terms of making sure that the vaccine not only induced a good immune response, that it worked, but also that every single even slight concern was thoroughly looked at. That's why throughout summer and fall, so many of these trials had moments where they were paused because people said, hey, we gotta make sure this is safe and that it works. And I think that communication was happening in real time to a lot of people, but it happened a little bit late. It also doesn't help that this entire thing was called Operation Warp Speed. Yeah. That's a terrible name. <laughs> That's I what like I thought too, absolutely. And the other part to your point, I think, you know, when have we seen a collaborative effort like this? I, I think, you know, I'd love to hear your opinion, but I wonder if this forever changes going forward, how we do collaborate and, and the speed at which we can see breakthroughs because to your point, when you look at mRNA, that's been, you know, Moderna ran a full page today in the Wall Street Journal saying, this isn't new. We This isn't overnight. We've been working on this a long time. And it's just mm -hmm. that this was the moment where the application of it made so much sense and where we could truly take that research and that technology to bear. And I'm excited for other, you know, other things we look at, cancers and other things out there where that collaboration can can help us look at ways that we can get impact to the market sooner. Do you feel that that's our potential coming out of this? A hundred percent, excuse me. I, I think, I mean, I might be wrong on this, but I believe Moderna, the company was even named after modified RNA. So this is, this is their jam, this is what they do. You know, scientists have been working on incredible applications with biotechnology for years. And I think one thing that's gonna happen right now is that the political and financial markets, including the lay public, are now all going to kind of coalesce and pay attention to what science can really do. 
you know, even if you talk about something like CRISPR, so CRISPR is genetic engineering, and I, that's, a very, that's a very broad way to, to describe CRISPR, but long story short, you know, people have been talking about these amazing things that scientists can do with gene editing technology. And that's not what we're talking about with mRNA, but my point is, is that in the future, when different proposals come to market, when different solutions, different ideas get put forth by scientists, I think the public is gonna pay more attention because they've now seen what can really happen if everyone gets behind a singular goal, like getting a vaccine to market. It's, a, it's unfortunate that it took a pandemic and it took politics to get involved, but I, that's where we are right now. And I hope that changes. Yeah, I think it's a little ironic that we had so many politicians say, you know, masks don't work and don't worry about the pandemic. It's rounding a corner. It's going to disappear. We're not going to talk about it again. And then all of a sudden they're all rolling up their sleeves to get vaccinated yeah. and they're celebrating the success of a vaccine. That should be a clear cut signal to people that the vaccine science works and all the other messaging was just politics, conspiracy and hearsay. And so we have major challenges happening in this world with respect to with climate change, other pandemics, even nutrition and feeding a growing population. And I think science is going to be put at the forefront where it belongs to try to solve these massive problems and the public's going to rally behind it. Well, and I think to your point, when you look at food insecurity right now because of the pandemic and everything that's going on, I think we're going to open the door for that's not new, but more visibility on those issues and people really becoming more acutely aware, even in their own communities, so that they're awake to the issue. And, and I think that's also what's going to drive a lot more people to pay attention to these different areas of, quote, pandemic, you know, that we haven't addressed in the past. So one question I'd love to ask you is when we look at, you know, the vaccine. So let's say we can get over the hurdle of people's fear of, you know, well, has it been too quick and I should get it? What should we expect over the coming months? How can we be good parts of the solution? Because clearly, you know, 20 something million people getting, you know, vaccinated over the next however many, you know, weeks and months is the first step, right? But what are the things that, because you talk about herd immunity, I would assume that takes some time. So what is it that we can expect as we roll out? What do you think that horizon looks like timeline wise? I know nobody wants to hear this, but I think the horizon looks exactly how it looks right now, at least for the near future. You know, people are throwing out these numbers, like we're gonna get back to, and I'm air quoting right now, normal <laughs> in six to seven months. I would not focus on that number. What I would focus on instead is that until we actually get enough of the population vaccinated, we are more than likely gonna be living in some degree of what we're doing right now with the masks, with distancing, with limited businesses open and with still kind of putting life on hold. We can get there. If you actually look at the grand scheme, it, it might be a year and a half, it might be two years since this was declared a pandemic, we'll be fine, we'll get there. In the meantime, I, I totally agree with what you said. I think we have to be focusing on mental health, on wellness, on nutrition, on food, on education for our kids and how we're taking care of them and about local businesses. I think those are the pillars that are truly breaking people. I honestly think the average person, regardless of political spectrum, regardless of religion or background, can get through the social restrictions if we all band together. But what's really causing division is when we look at the mental health aspects of everything, of parents struggling with children at home who aren't getting education, with food insecurity, and with businesses who are going under. That's where the frustration stemming. I've also completely ran away from your question. But no, no, no it's, but I'm following you, and I think it's important, and it's important to the people listening because we're all in this, right? Together, and yeah. we're all seeing this. People, people listening will fall into some phase of the vaccine rollout. Right now, phase one A is going to be people working in those long-term care facilities and essential health workers. The CDC just voted on phase one B, which would be Americans older than the age of seventy-five, I believe, and then other essential frontline workers. So that's things like teachers, police officers, firefighters, people working in grocery stores like that. And eventually there'll be a phase where everyone can go and get vaccinated. What we're looking for when we say herd immunity is a percentage of people and estimates are around 70 to 80% of people to get vaccinated where the virus can no longer easily jump from person to person. That's what we've done. 
with other preventable diseases. That's what we've done with measles, pertussis, polio, things like that, which is why vaccines are so important because once you actually create that barrier in the public, the vaccine, you'll start to see rates of transmission slowly dip down that reproductive number we talk about how many people can be infected from one person, we want that number to be teeny tiny, definitely less than one. You know, when you talk about that, you, you look at the variant, right? So supposedly the UK, there's a variant on the virus that now they're shutting down, you know, the travel back and forth from the UK because they're concerned there's this new strain, right? So, you know, between now and then, how, how might that affect it, the impact of what we're doing? Do we change course? Do we just keep doing what we're doing, assuming variants like that are going to happen and that we're just keeping the process moving forward? I say that because for me, I'm not as alarmed by that because I expect that to happen. I mean, these viruses are super agile, right? They're gonna mm -hmm. adapt and mutate. Um, so we just have to stay the course, right? We do, and I'm, I'm glad you brought up the variant for multiple reasons. Number one, viruses do mutate. We see it every single year with seasonal flu. And this is also a good example of how vaccine is not our only tool. We mentioned it earlier, but everything else like restricting travel, wearing masks, physical distancing, all of that will also protect us, not only against you know, an unknown variant if that were to happen, but also in continued spread as people are getting vaccinated. Now, going back to the variant, you know, the World Health Organization and scientists are looking at this variant in, in the UK. I believe it's in the UK, Denmark, and there's, there's a trace of it in Australia, and are saying, hey, it's, it's likely way more transmissible, but there is no evidence that it's causing a more severe disease. And then on top of that, the spike protein, so the little protein on the outside of the coronavirus, is similar enough to the variants that the vaccines were made against. In other words, the vaccine should still protect against this new variant, which is good news. But that's why all these measures have to be put into place. If you look at the headlines right now, there are travel bans from flights from the UK all over the world, like Argentina, Colombia, Latvia, Italy, France, Iran. And so people are looking at this variant and saying, even though we have vaccines approved, we still need an additional measure to protect people. And that might be a roller coaster that plays out for the next four or five months. We'll just have to wait and see. I think it's important that people are are paying really close attention to this. And if I can go back to one thing you said earlier, one silver lining with regards to science throughout this pandemic is people are way more in tune to science headlines. And it's refreshing for me to hear people ask these questions that demonstrate a pretty solid amount of scientific literacy. People are reading and paying attention. And I think going forward, any surprises in headlines will be met with more preparedness because people are paying a little bit more attention. And through all of that, I'm hoping people are also learning how and where to find validated information, how to know that what they're reading is legit and it's not BS. Well, as a friend of mine who's a researcher said, thank goodness science is finally sexy again. And I agree, that's, a, that's an awesome thing. I said, good for you. Science has always been sexy, researcher friend. I know, exactly, but it was so cute. So question mark for you, you mentioned something really near and dear to my heart. I'm super involved in the community here with children's efforts and children's support. You know, this is a tough time for our kids, right? When we look at everything from what's going on at school to mental health to, you know, being completely virtual and the impact it has on how they socialize and how they feel about their success. Obviously learning virtually isn't a skill set for every child, um, you know, in lack of that. So what can we be doing, whether we have kids or not in our community to really help our children and to really be supportive at this time and more importantly, to reassure them that this is a moment in their life, but it's not, doesn't define their whole life um, to be in this moment. So how can we be good role models for those kids? I think the first message to tell people is a little bit of reassurance that kids are extremely resilient. I don't think we give children enough credit for how resilient, strong, and creative they are. Kids will bounce back, but we need to prioritize children moving forward, not only with respect to education, and safely getting them back to schools, but also with regards to food safety and mental health. Now, if you don't have kids and you, don't, or you aren't actively around children, it doesn't mean you can't check in on your friends 
your neighbors. It doesn't mean you can't donate to local food banks. You can't see how you, can, you can't get involved. You can help amplify the message. There's volunteer programs across the country I've heard of to kind of work with children's health. People are acting as virtual tutors. I mean, there's so many things you can do. You can even just provide reassurance on social media to a friend of yours who has kids, and it might make a big difference. Check in, say, can I help? Can I Zoom and read your children a book, which I did the other day. But anyway. Oh, that's awesome. I love that. <laughs> I love it. I love it. But no, I think that's so important. And I guess the last thing, you know, that I would ask is, you know, one thing that's been impactful to me as a business person is sort of watching this time because we are very involved uh, on my personal business. We're very involved with the research community on things like vitamin D, immunotherapy, all of these kinds of things. Um, and historically, because of licensing and patenting and, you know, making money from the, the technology that they sell, there often hasn't been a lot of incentive to collaborate and cooperate uh, across research entities because, you know, some of these things are marketable <laughs> and they're things that they rely on for funding, right? So I love, for me, I feel that I've been really encouraged to see the dynamic of the collaboration because you actually see institutions that traditionally be competitors looking at, hey, it's good for all of us to be out there and the more we can, we, even though we may have our own approaches and our own products, you know, we're collaborating to come together for the good. Um, and I hope that that's something we'll continue to see out there. But, you know, your point is sometimes the, you were talking about, you know, the scientific community getting the spotlight, but I also think it's a moment for the scientific community to look at how they can collaborate in ways that are more helpful and maybe not always be seen as knowledge's power by keeping it in its silo, you know? So I wonder if you see that, you know, will be sort of a change for how science collaborates in a way that's more understanding that everybody benefits when we make these breakthroughs. I think that is a perfect scenario. And I do in my heart feel that's what the majority of scientists and people out there working towards a common solution want. They want to collaborate. What we need is a rest of society to also kind of give science that opportunity to collaborate. And there's just so much disparity with respect to resources and funding that it's, it's just not, it's not as seamless as we want it to be. I wish companies would have equal access to what they need to kind of work together. But you know, sometimes you have some companies who have millions and millions of dollars. They have a lot of excess funding, whereas other companies don't. And is there a way for there to be a kind of a, a better ecosystem for this type of collaboration? I think we're seeing it in some corners, but even when, even let's say even science gets together and this incredible product comes to fruition, Let's say it's a vaccine for COVID-19. There's still a supply chain that has to be addressed as well. And so you can't just rely on scientists and say, give us a solution and that everything else is great. We then have to look at the fact that we have 50 states. We have, <laughs> we have dozens of local state and health departments. We have different supply chain arms. We have politics involved. I mean, there's so much, there's so much happening in a moment with distribution to the vaccines that's kind of painting a picture of how we just need, we need a much better streamlined system of delivery in this country. We saw it with testing, we saw it with PPE, and we're seeing it right now with vaccines. Yeah, I agree. And I think that, but I also think to your point, it's thinking it through all the way through the food chain, right, to delivery, because I think we were so focused on having a solution and then everybody's like, oh, crap, <laughs> how do we get it to everyone who needs it? And more importantly, you know, to your point, if you look at how Texas is handling it, versus California versus anyone else. It's a clear vision of disparity, right? In terms of mobility, the line to get there. So, um, you know, I think University of Texas just announced it, it's vaccinating all of its students, you know, as a priority for January, you know, based on being a federal distribution center. So when you look at things like that, it just shows that, you know, that's not quite the, the process for everyone else. So. You know, I think to your point, you know, thinking that through and granted, I, I know every state has its own autonomy, et cetera, but I think, you know, thinking through how we can centralize more of that activity so that it is even, but even going forward, learning from this, I think, you know, like other industries where you see incubators to just sort of help in business, young, new companies that have great ideas or scientists, you know, who maybe don't have the grant funding 
to, to get, but they have amazing, you know, potential and ideas. So how do we spread that a little better so that they all have potential? So regardless, I think it's encouraging that this moment in time may open the door for a lot more thought and dialogue about that and give more visibility to the equality of it all. So I'm super excited about the potential of that. Yeah. I, I totally agree with you. There are some really cool incubators out there for digital health startups and things in like the life sciences, biotechnology. But one other, one other layer we have to talk about is in order for this collaboration to happen, in order for solutions to, to be delivered, we also need to improve transparency and trust with the public. And we've unfortunately had something else that we've seen kind of mishandled throughout the pandemic. But I think when solutions get proposed, when scientists say, I have this really cool method for solving this problem. It, there just needs to be more quote unquote sexy headlines mm -hmm. and a better platform for the communication. So the public also gets behind it. And the public doesn't get told way later when, the, when this product is being proposed. I think we now have a world that's gonna be a lot more tuned into what's happening in the scientific community. And we need to take advantage of that. Well, but I also think things like you've been doing for years, I mean, I think really being able to use social platforms and other platforms to be more communicative directly, you know, because there's something about a message going direct as well that's super powerful because it doesn't get filtered along the way, you know, mm -hmm. by maybe people who don't understand the technology or don't understand how to present the proposition from a scientific point of view. So I love that there's more people with that background getting involved in the media side, you know, to tell the story mm -hmm. in a powerful way, to be inquisitive enough to go seek the information and share it, you know? So I feel like that's a huge opportunity for us. And that's why even having you on today with us, you know, it's, it's a great way to continue to educate people to become thirsty, to sort of seek out information on their own, right? Stay thirsty. Well, if I can add one point, which I might be the most important point I make today, <laughs> is, yes, we want people to be thirsty. I want people to go and research and find validated information. But we also need to understand there are so many different, there's so many different socioeconomic, religious, ethnic, I mean, there's so many different groups in the United States and they all have to be represented when it comes to not only communication, but when it comes into messages of trust and public outreach and delivery. So people have to believe that these scientific endeavors at politics also care about their unique community. We saw COVID-19 hit communities of color especially hard. And that was just clear, clear spotlight proof of health disparities in this country. And that social determinants of health are a very real thing. When it comes to rolling out the vaccines, we have to build trust and directly communicate with communities of color, people who may not trust the vaccine. And that's not only gonna take headlines and scientists, you know talking about facts, but that's also going to take bringing in community leaders and people who are trusted by specific groups of individuals. We are so incredibly divided. It's frustrating, but it's also beautiful because that's what makes this country incredible. But when it comes to health and science communication, we have to take, take that into account. You can't just go on the news or on social media and say, you know, this medication works because of this data. You have to actually take a step back and say, who am I speaking to? Who is my target audience? And how can I assure that people know that I have their specific, unique interest best at heart? I'm not just targeting this community in California or these rich politicians or the Midwest. I'm communicating something to everyone. And if I can't, I'm going to find the person who can. Yeah, and I think that's the point. Is, and, and more importantly, I see this as a moment, too, to, to bring a spotlight to your point about how certain you know, communities have been impacted more than others. I also think there's a health message in all of that that's so important that we've continued to not address, which is how do we get better equality in, you know, proactive preventative care and in, in education into communities that, you know, so we don't see that certain communities are much more impacted, you know, and I feel like that's, we've been talking about that for generations about, you know, ensuring that there's healthy food and, you know, access to great preventative care and, and education and all of those kinds of things across our whole country, which is amazing. And I love the diversity, but at the same time, to your point, it also means we have to care for that diversity and ensure that we're, you know, putting a lens that sort of focuses on the mm -hmm. needs of that community. So I think, you know, 
as you said, it's, you know, it's, we can, it's we're kind of chipping away at this thing one little block at a time. <laughs> but I do feel that it's presented a lot of opportunity for all of us to be more, more aware and more sensitive and hopefully thinking about the things you're talking about, you know, so that we are, I call it personalizing, but truly personalizing the information to the person who really needs it in a way that it's relevant to their life and to their, their goals and their beliefs. How is this moment in time, how are you using it personally? When you think about how you're moving into 2021 for you, um, you know, do you have new goals for yourself? Do you have new areas that you feel passionate about being an evangelist for as you go into 2021? Well, the reflective question that's kind of tied into my New Year's resolution. <laughs> One thing I'm looking forward to focusing on is how I can help in the collective message that we need to be better about preventative care and we need to better address social determinants of health. We've been speaking about it for decades. It took a pandemic to get it to the top of news headlines, but I think it's all about small changes. Advocacy and you know, calling your senator, doing what you can with, with respect to volunteering and donating your time, but also in terms of our language. And for example, and this is a conscious effort I'm making, we commonly say things like, call your doctor if you have X, Y, and Z symptoms, or physically distance at home, keep your children at home, and use the internet to go to school. Well, some people don't have a physician. Some people do not have the opportunity to physically distance. They live in a one-bedroom apartment, and a lot of people don't have the internet. And I think by changing the dialogue and making ourselves more culturally competent, we can start to address this problem. That's one thing that I'm going to make a conscious effort with anytime I'm speaking, writing, or talking to people about health efforts. Now, with regards to my personal changes, this is actually funny you bring this up. I only have a few minutes, but I'm going to get through this. I, I've kept like a mental and actually physical diary of different practices I've made in my life throughout this year, things that have gotten me through these crazy, long, boring, dreadful days, and they are going to stay with me. So little things like I've, this is going to sound so elementary, but I've upped my hydration, plain old water, nothing special. I have started meditating. I started to keep a gratitude journal, which I write in at least three times a week. I actually, my, my yoga and stretching has now become a regular routine. And I'm, this is all a function of keeping myself going, avoiding burnout, staying motivated. I've also made dietary changes. Like I've started to focus a little bit more on fiber and I've paid attention to functional eating, meaning how do I feel throughout the day and how does that correlate to my diet? Like there's all these I think there's all these things we've learned about ourselves because we've been locked indoors. While we've been locked indoors, we've been trying to stay positive and motivated and be there for our families. I think people should take a step back and look to see what's worked for you, what hasn't worked for you, what was different about your day when you felt great, what was happening when you fell down, what made you feel better, all that stuff, and turn it into a productive tool moving forward. And a lot of these tools people will keep even after we come back to normal and open back up. It's so true. And by the way, I can tell in your skin that you've been hydrating. I don't know if you uh, notice a difference in your skin, but I can tell. So good for you. Can you um, tell that I'm also wearing the Skin Authority sunscreen that you said? <laughs> I love it. Well, thank you. I'm so blessed. I I'm love glowing that. right now. I know you are. You know, one of the things I kind of wanted to shift a little bit, you know, with the remaining time we have, because I know that you've recently launched a podcast. And I, I have. <laughs> I would love to learn more about Nova now um, and sort of, I mean, obviously you're an amazing talent from that point of view, but what do you really want people to know about Nova now? Uh, why should they tune in and what can they expect? I appreciate the second to talk about it. So Nova now is Nova. Everyone knows Nova. You're evidence-based, entertaining, engaging science platform from PBS. They produced amazing documentaries for decades. Basically, this is Nova's first podcast. And what we wanted to do was bring the science education and storytelling and kind of look at modern headlines, like what's actually happening right now, and take the science from that headline and make sure that people really understand from a scientific perspective what's going on. And it's great because we do it in an engaging way and we bring in these experts in this specific field to really say, okay, let's get rid of the headline. Let's just talk about what's real and what's not. And our very first episode was on mail-in voting. And people might say to me, they're like, well, that's not scientific. And I say, well, actually, making sure that mail-in voting is safe is very scientific. 
and there's a lot of technology involved there. And all of a sudden that created this light bulb moment for people. They're like, whoa, there's science behind that quote unquote controversy. I'm like, absolutely. And then, you know, the second episode we launched was on COVID testing and how CRISPR, which is a gene editing tool, can revolutionize COVID testing. And I'm not sure if I can tell you about the next episode, but I'll give you a hint. It is trending in the news and it has a lot of science involved with it. And it might have to do with wildfires. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I didn't give it away. I did not give it away. <laughs> but... Um, being in California, I can kind of connect the breadcrumb tree. Okay. <laughs> Listen, people are, people, I, I, I will never belittle someone who is watching the news because everyone is curious. Everybody wants to learn more. We're human beings. I see it a lot in, you know, patients I interact with. And that kind of genuine human curiosity is what we, what we wanted to tap into with Nova Now, the science behind the headline. So I encourage everyone to subscribe, tune in and leave us comments about topics you want to hear about. Well, the good news is with that subject matter, I don't think you'll ever run out of topics, right? Exactly. I mean, because that's probably, if I were to say one moment in time right now that I think is the most exciting about being present now, it, it is the fact that you know people that wouldn't have tuned in and been interested two years ago are definitely for sure on the radar looking at everything about science right now and trying to really understand it and more importantly you know if you even look we did a great thing with kids on uh, baking a cake and really how much science is in to you know the daily things of making totally and you know and linking those two where they didn't really understand it was so cool to see the kids light bulbs go off when you talked about how a cake science is the first biochemistry lecture for children I'm sorry, baking is the first biochemistry lecture children go through. Yeah, it's amazing. And it's a great way to relate, right? Because they completely can understand in going through that process. So I love that you're doing it. So one last thing um, before, and I know you, you said Nova now and following up, I just make sure we give everybody exactly where to find you for the podcast. You can find Nova now um, wherever you get your podcast. I've always wanted to say that before. Find Nova Now wherever you get your podcasts, including <laughs> Google Podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you want. <laughs> well, and I love that you're partnered with PBS. I just think it's such an amazing, you know, I do a lot of nonprofit work with them, and it's just an amazing venue for being able to just keep information that truly is coming unbiased at you, and I love that part of it. So you nailed it. Um, the And I, I will compliment PBS here, but I'll just make this as a larger sentiment, but science is nonpartisan. There is no arguing when it comes to scientific principles, data and evidence. Now it's totally fair for people to have a dialogue about it and say, hey, I disagree and actually have scientific discourse because that's what we do. But I, I, science is actually very unifying. You know, and if you actually can have a respectful conversation about what's happening out there, you will see people from both sides of the aisle, different backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds, ages, everyone can find something to grasp onto. That's the beauty of science. That's why it's evergreen. Yeah, I love it. And I, I totally agree. But last but not least, I can't thank you enough for being with us. Uh, you know, I love the fact that you espouse positivity and that's what we're all about. And I feel like you had so many uplifting comments to share. And more importantly, I can't wait to tune in to Nova now. I will be one of the fans out there watching. And just thank you enough. And last, if there's anything we didn't cover that you want to share with the audience before we, we go, I'd love to have one part, final parting word. Well, I appreciate that as well, Celeste. I really do. I, one, thing I will, one thing that I just want to kind of leave to everyone out there is like there is a lot of divisiveness right now. There's a lot of reasons to kind of feel down, angry, frustrated, scared. That's normal. But I think we should all just keep remembering the way humanity has really shown up in the past seven months. I, I'm, I'm so continuously inspired by people who are helping their neighbors and their community right now, by the people who are shopping for those who are higher risk or delivering meals to kids who can't get them. Some of the teachers who have gone above and beyond to make sure people in their communities are cared for. There's, there's so much good happening in the world as well. And a lot of it's getting swept under the rug right now because of this really annoying political climate we're in. And I, I just want to encourage everyone, just make sure you're taking a minute to look at the good that's all around us. Cause there is a lot of it. Like things suck badly right now, but we're a resilient species and we're going to get through it. 
Absolutely, and we're gonna get through it together. So as we always wrap up, be positive, be truthful, be kind. So I love that. And thank you so much, Dr. Patel, for being with us today. Thank you. I love that mantra. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today and bear it all. Be sure you subscribe so you're notified every time we upload a new episode. You can follow us at Bear Skin with Celeste and at Skin Authority on Instagram and my personal Instagram at Celeste Hilling. Also make sure to leave a review. We would love to hear your feedback and your burning questions. See you next time.